0: Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for this day. Thank You for waking each of us up and bringing us to this church building where we can gather as the Crossing Church to worship You in spirit and in truth. We love You so much, Lord, for the way that You've loved us, who You are and what You've done. You're great, Lord, and Your greatness is unsearchable. Lord, thanks for the Psalms, the book of Psalms. It's amazing. Thank You for Psalm 6 and what You did in my heart over the last couple weeks. Pray, Lord, that I would get out of the way that You would be made much of. That I would speak truly about Your Word. And as Your mouthpiece, I would speak for You and encourage Your people. We love You, Lord, and we praise You. We are here to glorify You and to hear from Your Word and to obey it and to be inspired and shaped by your spirit in us into more and more Christ likeness. And we pray this for the sake of his name and your glory. Amen. So there's a scene in a classic movie. I'm going to kind of give you a spoiler alert though it came out in 1990 so you've had your chance. I'm not going to ruin the end, the ending scene or anything, but I'm going to tell you about a scene from a movie called Robin Hood Prince of Thieves. Kevin Costner. Hands, who's seen it? Okay, well, half of you need to figure it out because it's a really good movie. There's a scene where Robin Hood and his men come upon this river, and they got to cross this river to get what looks like the Sherwood Forest. I think it's the Sherwood Forest. And Robin is the first one trying to cross, and he gets ambushed by Little John. Actually, his name's John Little, but Little John. And, uh, and his men, Robin Hood falls down and, and they basically say to Robin Hood and his men, you have to pay a tax to cross this river to come into our forest. And Robin Hood says, no, I'm not going to pay you the tax. So Robin Hood and little John get in a fight and they have these big bow staffs and little John is a weird name because he's a huge man. And he's really good with a bow staff, and he seemingly wins. He handily defeats Robin Hood, and the, what looks like the final blow, he hits Robin Hood, almost like in a, in a spot that looks like the stage. He falls, Robin Hood falls off into this pool of water. Looks kind of deep. He goes under, and then, and then Little John turns around to gloat to his buddies, and Robin Hood comes up out of the water with his staff, and maybe a detail I don't have to share, but I'm going to share it. He puts his staff between Little John's legs like this and pulls him backwards, into the pool. And he falls horizontally into the pool. And then Robin Hood grabs a handful of his shirt and he's dunking him under the water and lifting him up and dunking him. And you see total fear and desperation on little John's face. He's like, help, I'm going to die. You're killing me. And you're like, wow, he's really freaking out. And then he says, I can't swim. And you realize, oh, well, that would be a terrifying thing. And so Robin Hood says, well, do you yield And little John is screaming, almost crying, yes, I yield. And Robin Hood says, then put your feet down. And you see this revelation on little John's face. He laboriously brings his feet under him from being horizontal and stands up and he's standing in three and a half, four feet of water. I think that's a really good picture for what we see in this psalm and what we should experience in the Christian life. I struggled, to be honest, if I should start that way because it's kind of a funny scene and I don't want to make light of what we see in this psalm and what we experience as Christians as deep and dark depression. Life can be scary. We can feel like we're drowning. And yet as Christians, all we really need to do is get our feet under us and stand on the truth of God and His character and who He is. We're going to see we're allowed to be distraught. We see that in Psalm 6, probably one of the most depressing psalms in the whole book, and I've read the book many times. But I think the point of this psalm, my point this morning is that despite our desperate circumstances, we can stand on the truth that God is with us. He will deliver us. He hears our prayers. In this psalm, David is desperate. Did you not hear it? He's distraught. He's even doubtful of God. But in the end, the last three verses we see, he stands on the promises and the character and the nature of God. Now, we don't know the background information to this psalm like we do in other psalms, like when Pastor Daniel preached Psalm 3, there was background information. David was running from Absalom. We don't know the background of this, and I think that's a grace of God. Honestly, I think sometimes we want this background information because it's helpful in understanding the context, but I think we're often prone to say, well, I, you know, in Psalm 51, well, I'm not an adulterer and a murderer, so this psalm doesn't apply to me, and that's not the point. The Book of Psalms is meant to be a vocabulary to help us articulate what it's like to walk through this earth, and it doesn't have to exactly apply it in the same situation for us to say, "Yeah, I've been there; I can empathize." Psalm six can be divided in two halves. Pretty simple message this morning. There are two halves: verses one through seven, we see David's desperation, and verses eight through ten, we see David's stand. So let's look at desperation together. We're just going to kind of walk through the verses together. So get your eyes on your Bibles. There's a lot we can learn about our own desperate circumstances as we read about David's. In the first two verses, we see that David is desperate for God's grace. Church historians and the early church fathers classified this psalm as a penitential psalm. That penitent means sorrowful for sins. And I think that's mostly based on verse 1. I would classify it and other commentators would classify this more as a psalm of lament. Though though David may be penitent for his sins, he's lamenting about something. So it seems as if God is disciplining him in verse 1. So if God is disciplining David for sin, David knows he needs gracious discipline and not angry or wrathful discipline. He says, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. It brings to mind the reality that God does discipline, brothers and sisters. He calls us to a standard. God says, be holy for I am holy. Now, we don't try to obey God to earn our salvation. We know that as Christians. But we show the fruit of our salvation by seeking to live holy lives. And when we don't, when we mess up, God will discipline us. A lot of times, the discipline for that sin will just be the results of that sin. The natural consequences of that sin. What came to mind for me was Hebrews 12. Verses 5-11. through Listen to this. The author says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. Now listen to verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. It may be in verses 1-7 through that David has forgotten that God disciplines those he loves. God is treating David as a son. God does discipline us, and it shows he's treating us as his sons and daughters. Yet sometimes we forget that, do we not? And like David, it feels like we are experiencing the wrath of God. And already here in verse 1, brothers and sisters, the Gospel comes in. We know that Christ took every drop of the wrath of God for us. He drained the entire cup of the wrath of God for all who would believe in Him. He did not just drink 99% and leave that 1% for you. If you're, if you're going through it right now, you are not experiencing 1% of God's wrath. Christ took it all. And and God is treating you as a son or a daughter in your discipline. Praise God for that truth. We just sung about it. There is no more wrath left for us. And even though we know that, we can know that intellectually in our hearts, we can try to believe that even though David ends this psalm on a high note, yet our emotions can still get the better of us. In verse 2, he says he's languishing. I had to look this word up. Usually the pastor will tell you about the Hebrew or the Greek word. I'm just telling you about the English word. We can guess based on the context, but I looked it up and I'm glad I did. Languish To languish means to become feeble or weak. Or to live in a state of depression or decreasing vitality. Does that not sound like where David's at? He's depressed and his strength is decreasing. He doesn't know how much longer he can make it. He asks for healing in the second half of verse 2 because his bones are troubled. Does David mean there that he's suffering physically or is it a figure of speech? I think he's probably suffering physically as well because we all know if you've been through depression that when you're that depressed, it affects your physical body as well. You're tired all the time. You feel weak. You don't want to get up. You don't want to go to bed. You take naps all the time our emotional and spiritual states affect our physical states. So the application, I believe, for us based on verses 1 and 2 is this. When we are in the dark night of the soul, asking God for grace is the best place to start. Do we not so often, I'm guilty of it, in, in the midst of depression, anguish of soul, we ask God to get us out right away. Get me out of here right away. Instead of first saying, God, give me grace. Give me grace to get through this for as long as You would have me in this pool of water, like little John. That is the best place to start. But, it's not wrong to ask God to deliver us from a desperate circumstance. We see David do that in verses 3-5. through David asks for God's saving presence. He says, my soul is greatly troubled, But you, O Lord, how long? Turn and deliver my life. Save me. David feels as if God has turned his back. He wonders how long he will have to wait on God. Have you ever felt like that? A few really important things came to my mind as I considered and meditated on this verse similar to the wrath of God, but the first one is because God turned His back on Christ, He will never turn His back on us. Jesus, hanging on the cross, one of the last things He said is, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? I don't claim to understand that fully. Actually, recently I think I've come to the conviction that the Trinity was not Broken in that moment, but that's a theological debate for nerds. We can talk about that after church if you want. But there's a real reality in which, as God the Father was pouring out his wrath on Christ, he turned his back. We don't know how long, but he turned his back. And Jesus said, My God, you've forsaken me. And because God did that, Christ did that for us, he will never turn his back on us, brothers and sisters, ever. He will never. We never have to feel that way. But it leads into the second one we can't always trust our feelings. David feels that way. We may feel that way. This is actually a pretty big counter argument for our culture right now, is it not? Our culture is saying your feelings are always indicative of absolute truth. And as passionate Christians, as a passionate Christian who's going to put on a filter right now, I would say malarkey. You can't always trust your feelings. I'm not saying feelings are bad. I'm a really emotional guy. I say that in every sermon. I love emotions. They're good. I like high highs and low lows and medium mediums. I like living life with emotions. Without them, wouldn't life just be plain and robotic? But we can't always trust our feelings. When we're in the dark night of the soul and we feel like God is distant, He's turned His back, it's not true. And the third and important thing to note here is that we will all spend portions of our lives waiting on God. <laughs> I've only been a Christian for eight years. I've only read through the Bible a few times. And if I know anything, I know one of the biggest realities of the Christian life and the stories we read in the Bible are people waiting on God. I know I've, I've said it a lot, so I'm sorry to, to beat a dead horse, but I live with my mom and dad. Love you, mom and dad. I always offer that caveat. Love living with my parents. They're great. But when Audrey and I moved here in 2014, We thought, we're going to live with mom and dad for six months to a year, and then we're going to get our own place. And almost eight years later, still live with my mom and dad. And that's okay. God's doing a lot in me and Audrey's heart that I wouldn't want to change. I want grace through this situation, not deliverance. God will deliver me when he deems fit. There are people in here who, like us, young married couple, waiting on your first home, your first place, whether it be an apartment or condo, a house, there are young people in here who are waiting on a spouse. There are people in here who are waiting on a child or another child. And it's hard, but one of the biggest lessons, we have to learn one of the biggest classes in the school of Christ is learning to wait on God with hands open. Joyfully, gratefully, worshipfully, trustingly, if that's a word. Maybe we all learn to wait better on God. So the second half of verse 4, David does ask for salvation and for deliverance. And as Rich preached last week, David grounds his request in the steadfast love of God. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. Not on his moral performance. Not because, Lord, I've done so good. I deserve this. I've earned it. This is crazy. Pardon my soapbox again, but you've hopefully some of you have seen the movie American Gospel. It's an argument against the prosperity gospel. And one of our famous, most famous pastors in America, Joel Osteen, biggest church in America, in his book, I think in your best life now, his book, he says, when you're going through a hard time, it's important to remind God what you've done. And then he quotes a prayer God, I've kept my family in church. I've served the church, I've tithed, I've done the right things, Joel says, it's important that you call down that blessing from God that you deserve, that you've earned. Psalm 6, Joel, the rest of the Bible, Joel, save me for the sake of your steadfast love, nothing in me merits my initial spiritual salvation or salvation out of a desperate and dire circumstance, Both the ground should be God because of Your steadfast love because You love Me because I'm Your son. I'm Your daughter. Glorify Your name through My salvation because of Your love, not because of Me. David's terrified in this moment. Maybe like little John. We see in verse 5, he's afraid he's going to die. For in death there's no remembrance of you. In Sheol who will give you praise? This verse caused me to stumble for a moment. Maybe it causes you to stumble for a moment. We have to remember here that David is not trying to have precise theology. He's not denying life after death. He's just articulating the way he feels in this moment. He's also reminding us the reality that humans are meant to be embodied souls. When God made humans in Genesis 1 and 2, He gave us souls and a body, and that's how we're supposed to be. Death is not natural. And we all know that. And if you haven't experienced death in your life, you will someday, and you'll mourn. And that'll be a reminder to you that death isn't normal. It hurts. The grave is a silent place. Charles Spurgeon says this, churchyards are silent places. The vaults of the sepulcher echo not with songs. Damp earth covers dumb mouths. I was tempted to apologize on behalf of the Prince of Preachers for his lack of political correctness. I decided not to. I don't think he's trying to hurt anyone's feelings by saying dead people are dead and their mouths don't work. There are people in this body who have recently experienced death. And my heart goes to them, and I'm sure Charles Spurgeon's would too. He's just making the point, a dead body doesn't praise God. I'll never forget this verse. At the end of 2016, beginning of 2017, my 49-year-old aunt, Aunt Karen, um, my my middle daughter's name, Callie, we were going to spell it with a C, but instead we spelled it with a K for Aunt Karen. Uh, 49 years old, she had just gotten a really great new job, was kicking butt in it, was recently engaged after a rough divorce earlier on in her life, was diagnosed with stage 4 neuroendocrine cancer. And... The MRI was horrible. The cancer was everywhere. It was a death sentence. And as part of my Bible reading in that season of life, I read Psalm 6, verse 5. And I just remember praying this for Aunt Karen. Lord, in death she'll have no remembrance of You and Sheol who will give You praise. And in that moment, I was not trying to have precise theology. I'm not thinking of a spiritual state after our bodies die. I'm just thinking about Aunt Karen's dead body isn't going to praise you anymore. Lord, save her. And he didn't, and God's good, and that's another sermon. Aunt Karen was a Christian. I believe she's happier now than she ever has been worshiping God more deeply than she ever has. Neither David nor I were denying life after death just that the point of life is to praise God. I have ten fingers and ten toes and a nose and ears and eyes and lips and legs for the the glory of God. And so do you. Everything that I and you are supposed to do with His body is to praise God. That's the point. This body is made for praising You, God, and it's not supposed to die. And in Christ, we get new bodies someday that will be able to do that more fully and more truly than we could imagine. Sorry. So thinking on the potential of dying and his desperate situation, David describes how he's been crying his eyes out. In verses 6 and 7, we see. What he says basically is he's worn out. He's worn out from all his crying. He's crying himself to sleep every night, drenching his bed and his couch with his tears. His eyes are wasting away because of grief, growing weak because of all of his foes. Have you ever been there? I've been there many times in only 34 years. If you haven't, you'll experience that someday. I think some people in this room right now are experiencing that. Our enemies within and without will at times break us down to tears. Whether it be human enemies, cancer, criticism, our own sin. There will be times in life where we want to throw in the towel and we'll ask, God, do you, do you notice? Do you care? Then we can stand. We see David take his stand in verses 8-10. through 10. David stands and he realizes he isn't going to drown. He puts his feet on the solid rock of the truth, the character, and the nature of God. And here's what I believe about this psalm. The situation hasn't changed. Now, it was unique studying lots. You read a lot of commentaries, making sure you're, you're kind of getting it right. But a lot of commentators believe that David wrote verses 1 through 7 and then later wrote verses 8 through 10 after he experienced a literal physical salvation or maybe a, a short period of time. And maybe the, the prophet Nathan came to him and said, God's heard your prayer and he's going to deliver you. That may be, but I'm prone to believe that, that David wrote all these psalms all at once. And what he experienced, we can experience too. He poured his heart out to God, as should we. And there are times in prayer where God will just redirect our prayers. He'll put a verse on our mind. He'll he'll just cause our feet to stand. As, as Audrey and I have prayed for a home I can't tell you how many times, not every time, but many times, all of a sudden I find my prayers have turned into gratitude. I'm begging for a home, and then all of a sudden I'm like, Lord, thanks for this home. Thanks for my mom and dad who get, I get free babysitting all the time and they're helping us raise our kids and it's going to be special memories for my kids. And then I'm like, whoa, I didn't just make myself change my prayer. That's the Holy Spirit in me causing me to stand and redirect my prayers and my thoughts and my emotions. That's what I think has happened to David. He's still in the water. He's just uh, vertical now. And the first thing He does is tell His enemies to depart. Maybe His enemies are the cause of His desperation. Maybe He assumes they are mocking Him because of His dire circumstances. Whatever it is, He tells them to depart and we should do the same thing to our enemies and our greatest enemy, sin. Us Journey Group guys read an article together last week. We are talking about the fight against lust, and we've been talking about lust and anger. And this article said one of the most important things you can do when you you have an angry or lustful thought is to say no right away in the first five seconds. You're already losing the fight if you don't say no in the first five seconds. We feel that in our hearts and our minds, and we should say, depart from me, sin, you worker of evil. And why? Why should we tell our enemies to depart? Why does David tell his enemies to depart? Because he knows the Lord has heard his weeping. One author said, silent tears are not speechless ones. Psalm 56, verse 8, speaking to God. It says, God, You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in Your bottle. Are they not in your book? Isn't that salve for the soul? Every tear we've cried is kept in a bottle. God has seen it. He knows it. Maybe someday He's going to address it. Every single tear. Every single tossing in our bed God knows about. But I love this. Not only has the Lord heard His weeping, He accepts David's prayer. Verse 9, the Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. I've been convicted about my ability as a father. There are times where my kids run me down. If you have young kids, you've experienced that. And there are times where I feel like I'm so out of emotional capacity that I start ignoring My kids, especially my four-year-old son. Because I I can't answer the same why question the tenth time. And so I ignore him. And God will never do that to us. And I want to be like Him. I want to be a dad like Him who hears and accepts. If David can have this much assurance of his acceptance with God, how much more can we? In light of the cross of Jesus Christ. Romans 8.1 There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God hears us. He accepts us because we are in Christ. You Christians in here know that and you know what that means. But if there's anyone in here who's not a Christian, let me explain that to you. See, the New Testament more often refers to being a Christian as being in Christ than it says Christian. They're synonyms. But what it means is to repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. To believe that He died on the cross and took the wrath of God for your sins and that three days later, He rose again. Forty days after that, He ascended to heaven and He's seated at the right hand of God. And if you have repented and put your faith in Jesus Christ, then you are in Christ. And if you haven't done that, I, I call you to do that today. Ensure that God hears and accepts your prayers only because you're in Christ and not because of your moral performance. Pastor Aaron prays this one a lot when we're in the, the pastoral meetings. Hebrews 4.6 Let us then with confidence Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Brothers and sisters, in Christ we can confidently draw near God's throne knowing we will receive mercy and find grace when we need it. Because David knows that God hears and accepts his prayers, he can confidently say verse 10, All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. It may seem like the bad guys win at times. Won't it? There are times where the critics seem to win. There are times where cancer seems to win. Human enemies seem to win. But we know ultimately they don't. Through the life, death, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, we can stand on the truth that the good guys win. We know the ending of the story. Good always wins. I've taught Zeke that. He could repeat it to you guys. God will and does judge righteously. Sometimes He will do it in this life. The good guys, even in this life, won't seem like they win but we know ultimately on that day, the great day of judgment, God judges righteously. The enemies of God and His people will be ashamed of the choices they made and the actions they took against God and His people. One author said this, The Christ who will cast out the enemies of His kingdom will certainly come to the aid of His beloved who suffer depression, despair, and anguish of the soul. All of Christ's enemies have been made a footstool. And they are only our enemies as, 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 in as much as they are Christ's enemies. And Christ has won on the cross. He's, he's the victor. We're, we're living in the already not yet of the kingdom. It's already here, but it's not fully consummated. Christ has the final word. So, there's a final question as we step back and consider this whole psalm David's lament, his depression in verses one through seven, and his stand that God hears and God knows. This is the question I ask, maybe you do too. Why does God allow such overwhelming, depressing, dire circumstances in our lives? Why? We always want to know the why question. And God doesn't usually, in my experience, answer the why questions. But I think this one, He does. I think in at least two ways, God allows these things. For our walk and for our witness. Our walk with God. Our sanctification that we may share in His holiness. Why does God allow such hard things? I get emotional when I keep saying this because I have the honor, truly, of being in the pastoral meetings and I know what's going on with many of you. And today's a happy day, it's July 4th, but I know a lot of people are in the valley of the shadow of death right now. Why does God allow it? To get our hands off the world and onto Him. If I have a prayer that I pray often for me, for my life group, for my journey group, and for you guys, it's God, do whatever you need to do, bring whatever suffering you need to bring to get my hands off the world. He's continually getting Audrey and I's hands off the desire for a home. And onto Him, we're satisfied in You, God. That makes me think of one of my favorite songs. It's called Satisfied in You by the Sing Team. And the bridge goes like this. Let my sighs give way to songs that sing about Your faithfulness. Let my pain reveal Your glory as my only real rest. Let my losses show me that all I truly have is You. I'm satisfied in You. God tries us in a furnace of affliction, says Isaiah 48, for His namesake. He is committed to purifying the sin and the dross out of our hearts. And He does that through suffering, through tough circumstances. I assure you, when you're on the other side of a tough circumstance, you would say, I wouldn't trade it. It was hard, but I wouldn't trade it because what God has done in my heart to show me the things that I'm holding on to that aren't Him. To make me more Christ-like. To enable me to wait on Him more worshipfully and trustingly. He will finish the work He started in us. And He does that through suffering. And the second is, for our witness, the way we witness, the way we are on mission with the world. When the world sees the way Christians suffer, they should be astounded. They should be blown away. What an argument for the goodness of the Gospel of Jesus Christ without really even saying any words. When Aunt Karen got the diagnosis, the cancer diagnosis, the doctor was crying having to give this news to Aunt Karen. And Aunt Karen is hugging the doctor saying, I'm going to be fine. It's fine. I'm not worried. She told the family over and over, I'm not mad at God. He doesn't owe me anything. Every day is a gift. These doctors seeing Aunt Karen said, what is with that lady? And whether they would say it or not, I believe they wanted what she had. And the world wants what we have when we show to live as Christ, to die as gain. This world can't give me anything or take anything because I have Christ and therefore I have everything. So for the people who are suffering here this morning, you have an opportunity to show your family and the doctors and everyone else what you have that they don't. (laughs) Uh, I end with this another Charles Spurgeon quote. My prayer for me, for you guys. He says this, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. We can, we can walk through pain and suffering like David did in verses 1-7 through seven and know that God is, is working for us. We can stand on the truth of who He is, that He hears us, that He, he has delivered us in Christ. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, thank You We praise You for what You've done for us. That You prepare a table before us in the presence of our enemies because You are our Shepherd. We praise You and love You, Lord, for what You've done for us in Christ. Lord, continue to use us for Your glory. Lord, for those In our body who are suffering, who are in dire and depressed circumstances, I pray that you would show yourself to be near, that they would draw near with confidence to your throne of grace to find mercy in time of need. Thank you for your promise, Lord, that you will finish what you've started in us, that you will sanctify us, you will make us more Christ-like. For those in, in seasons of waiting, Lord, I pray that You would enable them and me and Audrey to wait patiently, joyfully, worshipfully, trustingly. We love You, Lord. pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.